Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Brain People podcast. We have an exciting topic today. We're going to be talking about mental health and exercise. My name is Dr. Katie Elson, and I'm joined here with Jonathan Edens. Hello, everybody. All right. Well, why don't we get started? Because we have a lot to talk about. Where do you want to get started, Jonathan? Well, let's first talk about whether or not exercise is actually good for mood, for depression, for anxiety. Um, what What are your thoughts when I ask when I pose that question? Of course, I think that's something that everyone knows about, right? That of course it's good. I yes. think the details of how it's good, or you know, what type of exercise, et cetera, is really the the main questions. So you're right. I think uh, for most people, it is fairly off- obvious that exercise is it's good for the body, right? But we also want to emphasize today why it's so good for the mind. So one one of the things that I wanted to discuss a little bit, I have some uh, some research articles that we can get into and kind of talk about some of the benefits. So um, what does the research say about exercise and its effect specifically on depression and anxiety? Um, there was actually a Harvard uh, study done, and they found that just with running for 15 minutes a day or walking for an hour reduces the risk of major depression by 26%. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's pretty good relative to even some of the medications we use, right? Another study that we looked at So exercise for the treatment of depression and anxiety, it actually compares favorably to antidepressant medication as a first line for mild to moderate depression, um, when was also shown to be uh, an effective cost-efficient treatment uh, for a variety of anxiety disorders. Well, I was just thinking for a second about 15 minutes Mm -hmm. running, like that's, that's not so much time, right? To have such a big benefit. And then an hour, you might say that might be a little bit longer, but still a dramatic impact uh, for something that and is also cost-effective, as you mentioned. And even if you can't run for 15 minutes, right, if you have physical limitations, but you're able to walk, right, you can still get the majority of that benefit, even if you're unable to do an hour. And this is not necessarily, it doesn't have to be broken down, I think, into like a, a, a sequential hour long, right? You can do it sort of broken up. And for many people, that's that's a better alternative to maybe do some a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the afternoon, and a little bit in the evening. I like that. It's like taking breaks if you, especially for those who work or have certain schedules that they can't get that walking in after or before work, they can take breaks and do a little bit at a time. Yeah. So this was an interesting study. This was 2007 and it was titled Exercise and uh, Pharmacotherapy and the Treatment of Major Depressive Disorder. Um, so they did a four months of treatment uh, with the participants. And what I, what I liked about this one was that they did um, they had one cohort that was doing supervised exercise, uh, one cohort that was doing home-based exercise, a medication cohort only, and then they also had a placebo-controlled response group. Which one do you think did the best? Definitely the medication, of course. <laughs> so actually it was. It was the medication, um, just just barely though, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what do you think did the second best? So, so, we, had, so we had supervised, home-based, medication, and placebo. Hmm. Like I'm being quizzed here. Uh, let's go with. Typically, we do option C, right? But I'll go with <laughs> option A. Yeah. So supervised exercise was actually second best, and then home based, and then placebo. Um, so not a surprise that placebo would be the least because they weren't really getting anything. Um, but in this particular study, medication forty percent 
uh, responded, so had remission rates um, with medication, 45% with supervised exercise, 40% with home-based exercise, and 31% with placebo. Do you have any takeaways from that? Well, I was just thinking about, you know, for those who are on medication and choose to do exercise, right, how much more of a benefit. And then I thought of also how with um, choosing to do exercise, it's, I mean, you're basically investing in your ability to feel better, right? So um, regardless of what it might be, at least you're choosing to do something versus the placebo being not, not being active in your mental health at all. Absolutely. And one of the things that, and I wish that they included that in this study was a combination, as you said, medication and exercise really would have uh, been nice to see that. I'm sure that study exists. I wasn't able to find it in, in my research. Um, but and I think another sort of take home point, and this is something that we've talked about before, but you know, medication, while it is definitely helpful, you know, in this case, it was 16% higher, right? Remittance, uh, remission rates um, than placebo. It's, you know, a lot of times we struggle with that because it's not as good as what we'd like it to be. But I think there's also that that aspect of, yeah, the exercise, while it definitely was higher than placebo, it's also not a necessarily the only treatment that was that would work for all those people in that study. And so that's where, you know, these, you know, we we talk a lot about this holistic approach and combining multiple different modalities in order to get the best result. Right? Yeah. And as you were talking about that, I thought about, you know, with side effects too. So some people are a little hesitant with medication because of certain side effects. And that's a valid point. And um, of course, that's something you work through with your provider. Um, but with if you think about for exercise, right, what side effects do you have of exercise? Muscle soreness. <laughs> yeah. Inconvenience of time. I don't know if that's a side effect, but <laughs> it is It is something. Uh, you know, some people, not everybody can do the types of exercises maybe that we'll talk about today just because of physical limitations or whatnot, right? Especially when I, I deal with a lot uh, of patients that are on Medicare, right? And so they're, they're elderly and um, some of them, you know, have really bad knees. They've had multiple surgeries. And so that, that's, that may be a, a little bit of a problem, but in most cases, most people are going to be able to do something more than what they're currently doing. Yeah. And to get started is the difficult part. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the ways in which exercise can help our mood. So there's multiple different hypotheses and it's not fully understood exactly why exercise actually can improve our mental health. Um, but these are just some, some ideas. So uh, we've got seven different hypotheses. The first one is called the thermogenic hypothesis. Uh, so basically, the theory is essentially that the increases in temperature in specific brain regions, such as the brainstem, can lead to an overall feelings of relaxation and redu reduction in muscular tension. So that's really interesting, the emphasis on temperature, right? Because when we think about, like, from a therapy perspective, um, when we're helping people with uh, regulating their emotions. It's talking about what we can do to regulate our temperature, whether through hydrotherapy, whether through um, exercise, but just several ways to regulate that temperature. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing because we have our wellness uh, program here, right? And so we're doing hot and cold in different sort of modalities, whether it's in water or a blanket um, or a sauna, right? These different things, uh, you know, maybe in part, part of the reason why they help you, I mean, there's a variety of different sort of explanations for it, but sort of going back to this thermogenic hypothesis of exercise, you exercise, it increases your, uh, your, uh, your, your body temperature, right? Which increases your brain temperature, which, um, helps apparently to make the brain feel more relaxed. It just reminds me of, I know, I don't know if you ever saw that study and 
I don't remember the names or anything, but we can find it. Um, but it's about the motion heat maps. Have you seen that? Where they yes. basically mapped out the motions that are happening in your body and how much temperature you feel. With depression, there's kind of a neutral, there's not much temperature in the core, but in the mm. extremities, there's a lot of absence of heat. Mm. So if you think about it, you know, with depression, we need to really increase that temperature. Yeah. Uh, so the second one is called the endorphins hypothesis. So this is, uh, most people have heard of endorph endorphins. They are essentially a natural opiate, uh, that is released inside the body to relieve stress and pain. Endogenous morphine. Endogenous morphine. Yes. Not quite as powerful as morphine, um, but definitely helpful. I know you're a runner as, as am I, right? Uh, everybody always talks about that natural runner's high, yes. uh, any hacks on how to like get the high and what does it feel like for you? Well, you have to run. <laughs> and I think a big part of the runner's high is pushing through the pain, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say pain, but the discomfort. The first mile for me is the hardest. And I never experienced the runner's high in the first mile. Mm -hmm. But it's after the first, maybe the second, and then it starts kicking in. And then I realize, oh, it's not as difficult. And so it's really, I think, the power of the mind to be able to push through the discomfort in order to start really feeling the benefits of of exercise with your with the runner's high do you feel like it's more in like in your brain or more just in sort of an overall body sensation i would say brain and body um i i wouldn't know how exactly it feels like how to describe a runner's high but you just it's almost as if like all the discomfort leaves and you just I don't know. I feel like I'm running on clouds. <laughs> yeah, this is something because uh, something that I, while I've been a runner for a long period of time, I was never really quite sure how to pinpoint. And even though I ran cross country in high school and I do really long distance runner or long distance run, uh, runs and was having to push through a lot of that discomfort, I still wasn't entirely sure. And so I've kind of played with some things and I actually think breathing might be an important component of how to sort of initiate that runner's high in, in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a faster in a faster way. So breathing through the nose specifically, yeah. um, fa I found that when I did that, I, it took me, um, it was a lot, it didn't take me quite as long in order to get to the place where I felt this sort of overwhelming sense of mental clarity that I typically didn't get. And so I don't know, it, it felt a little bit like a high to me when I do that. And so I, I'm going to assume that's uh, at least in part what some people mean by achieving a runner's high. Mm -hmm. So the third hypothesis uh, is the neurotrophic hypotheses. Uh, this is basically the releases in several neurotrophic molecules that stimulate hippocampal neurogenesis, brain angiogenesis, and the synthesis of monoamines. So that was that was a lot of sort of fancy terminology. Uh, basically, it, it essentially means that when you when you uh, exercise, there's some uh, new sort of brain development that is occurring. So angiogenesis is the production of new blood vessels, right? And so, and certain part, parts of the brain are going to grow um, as well. So uh, I don't think we need to really talk about that one any more than what we did. This one's a little bit more exciting though, the monoamine hypothesis. So essentially increases in neurotransmitters, specifically serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. So we talk a lot about mono, monoamines or neurotransmitters uh, just in psychiatry and psychotherapy in general. Um, but what is so special about these particular ones? I mean, these are the ones that we think about uh, that have imbalances when we're feeling certain ways, right? So when we think about depression, it's being low on serotonin. And 
Um, I, I know that for myself, um, years ago, before I studied any of this, I thought, okay, the only way to actually impact your neurochemicals is through medication, right? Mm. SSRIs, right? Okay, it increases serotonin. And then you start realizing, well, there are other things that can also impact brain chemicals. And so I think it's fascinating that, you know, with serotonin, you know, especially that's kind of considered like the mood, right, hormone that it can increase that dopamine. We think about pleasure or reward that also is increased. And then norepinephrine, which we know is really related to kind of also the stress response. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so the next hypothesis is the distraction hypothesis. So exercise essentially serves as a healthy distraction from depressing or stressful life events. Mm -hmm. So I, I think from a, I'd love to get your take from a psychotherapy perspective, because I feel like that's quite relevant to this particular hypothesis. Yeah. So one of the things I tell people, you know, distraction is greatest when it's productive. So some people do Netflix binge or, you know, all the things of avoidance, um, but they don't feel good afterwards because there's no sense of productivity. There's no change right after a binge. Nothing really has changed. Right. It's a distraction, but without any benefit with exercise, you're getting these all these other healthy benefits that we're talking about. And so it's productive. You feel better physically, but you also feel more confident. And I know that's going to touch into the self-efficacy hypothesis. But I would also say this, exercise can also be unhealthy in extremes and can be used as an avoidance strategy. So if you're exercising all the time to not deal with the core issues of your mental health difficulties, then, um, then it's not so healthy. So using it enough to distract yourself and bring down your emotions, to regulate your emotions, and then be able to face the problem that you need to deal with. Is there, how do you find that balance, right? When does it become too extreme? When is it that, you know, the person that's uh, exercising nonstop at the gym or running or whatnot, uh, when, when is it, uh, when is it maybe that, how do I phrase this? When somebody needs to recognize what it is that they're doing and maybe seek help. Yeah. So I would say, you know, there's two forms of exercise. There's the day-to-day -day regular habit and routine that you have. That's, that's great. And then there's the intense exercise that you might utilize to regulate your emotions in the moment. Um, but when it come, becomes avoidance is when you're, you're utilizing that time for the habit, to, you're lengthening it longer and longer, and you're trying to utilize it to completely avoid the problems that you have to face. So the habit should be just, okay, this is something good for me that I'm doing. The intense exercise, I'm only using it in the moment to bring down my emotions, but avoidance is I'm using it as a way to purposely not address the things that I need to address. So, so it's an issue of underlying motivation for the reason exactly. why you're doing it. And we're not necessarily saying that there aren't going to be any cases in which it's actually maybe a good thing. Maybe you are going through a stressful event and you just need to get out, clear your head, go for a run, go get that done. Mm -hmm. But if you find yourself doing that every single time, then maybe maybe it's uh, worthwhile to seek some additional help. Uh, the next hypothesis is, as she mentioned earlier, the self-efficacy hypothesis. So this is basically that uh, in that process of accomplishing certain tasks, in this case exercise, it perpetuates uh, greater confidence and further uh, and further believing that you can continue to complete the task. Uh, so in a sense, it creates a positive feedback loop that builds momentum um, and just overall feels good. Mm -hmm. right. And this is really important because in today's society, most of us like to do things that are easy. So mm. it's an instant gratification. But the things that are actually increasing self-efficacy, the belief that we can actually accomplish and kind of also this idea of resilience is when we do hard tasks, we're overcoming that difficulty and then that boosts our 
confidence in our ability to manage any other difficulties that might we might face. So you might overcome difficulty in exercise, but then that can translate to, well, I could deal with this difficulty in my marriage or in my relationships or at work, et cetera. Yeah, I love that. I love how uh, you build a, you increase your uh, your sort of a character or a skill uh, in one particular aspect of your life. And hopefully, you know, in most cases, that's going to bleed over into those other aspects. Exactly. And so you, if you focus on one thing, you might find that 10 years down the line, uh, you've really grown in a lot of uh, really, really awesome ways. Uh, the last hypothesis we'll cover is the reduced inflammation hypothesis. So exercise, you know, in the short term, right, can actually increase inflammation, right? But in the long term, we definitely know that it reduces inflammation. And this is, uh, so getting a little bit technical here, but CRP, um, some of you may have had a, a CRP or C-reactive protein actually ordered via a lab. This is typically just a marker for things like cardiovascular disease and other sort of chronic inflammatory states. We actually find uh, that when people exercise, uh, with elevated CRP, it does tend to actually reduce. The question that some people might have is, is there too much exercise, right? Because, you know, with marathon runners or others, are they putting their body in too much stress and in constant inflammation? I would say yes. I would say definitely there is uh, there is a, an excess that can be achieved. Mm -hmm. um, for most of our listeners, I don't think that's ever going to be a problem. Um, but, you know, in, in cases like ultra, ultra marathon runners where they're doing 100 miles and they're in training for that, they're doing, um, you know, dozens and dozens of miles every single day, right? that can put the body in really unnecessary stress. But most of those people are elite level athletes. And the vast majority of people listening to this podcast probably aren't going to have to experience that to, to some degree. But do you have any do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I agree 100%. And I would just say for those who may be engaging in exercise too much for the sake of avoidance, that's where you're also constantly putting your body in stress and inflammation. So moderate, like being temperate, right, mm -hmm. um, with our exercise is important. So one, one quick note just about the reduced inflammation uh, that I wanted to make is that so high CRP or the high C-reactive protein, which is that inflammatory marker that we were just talking about, is strongly source associated or correlated with depression. So that's sort of another, right, and just sort of this overall picture um, of these different hypotheses, you know, and, and we're not saying... Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're essentially trying to say with all these hypotheses that we've gone through that probably to some extent, all of these are really involved in the reasons as to why uh, exercise improves mood. Mm -hmm. So it's so in some people, maybe uh, a certain hypothesis is actually going to be more relevant to their own physiology. And other people, it might be a different hypothesis, right? But the in the grand scheme of things, really, it's just all we're trying to say is that exercise is really good and you should do it. Yes. That's sort of the take-home point. End of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> End of podcast. But let's talk about what are some of the best exercises to do. We know, we've heard that exercise is good, right? We've heard some of the reasons to why exercise is probably good. But let's talk about which types of exercise are actually best. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, well, you came up with these three Fs. So I don't know if you want to introduce them. But um, although we're using the three Fs, there are different principles behind these, right? But fun, frequent, and friendly, Right. And I would probably just kind of generally say things that can be incorporated as a lifestyle versus I'm just going to do temporarily to make me feel better. Yeah, absolutely. The The key with any sort of exercise routine is going to be keeping it consistent. Um, and so in, in this case, when we say fun, frequent and friendly, what we mean is so doing something that you actually enjoy, doing something that's 
you know, it isn't going to be such a drag every single time you do it. Um, frequent is just being consistent. So something that you can do on a relatively frequent basis, multiple times a week, if it's too inconvenient for you, it doesn't fit into your lifestyle, then find something else. Um, and then friendly, uh, just as if, if there's something that you can do that's going to incorporate some sort of social activity, some sort of social engagement, that's going to be better than not. Um, that's not absolutely necessary, but say, I know as a runner, you know, a lot of times we are going by ourselves. Um, but there are definitely times when I, especially as a cross country runner, I much enjoyed of running course. in a group way more so than I do enjoy running by myself. Yeah. And I think these three things are really touching on, you know, how to make it easier, right. To start and maintain an exercise regimen or routine. And I know I had a client actually yesterday where we were talking and she she's actually um, a personal trainer and she was mentioning, she's like, I know about exercise. Like I got this and, but she's struggling with exercise. <laughs> and I said, yeah, no, definitely. You probably know a lot more than I do. I said, my expertise now, which we can work through is, well, how do we get you started? Because she, that's what she was struggling with. And this idea of motivation. So Jonathan, what is something that our listeners, if they're struggling um, with the motivation to start exercise that they can um, start um, doing to help? Well, one thing I would say is that motivation is overrated, right? Okay. It's, uh, it's about uh, really the focus should more so be on discipline. And so in most cases, motivation is like a roller coaster. It's going to go up and down depending on the whims of your life, right? Uh, if you count on motivation to be there in order for you to do the thing, most likely, in most cases, you're not going to do the thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, once you start, if you choose to just start whatever activity it is that you're avoiding, in most cases, motivation isn't even going to be an issue because you've built momentum and then you're going to keep moving with it. Yeah. Um, so that that would be my answer. Yeah. And I, just to add to that, motion changes emotion, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea, most people wait for the emotion or the sensation of motivation to start something but it's actually the reverse. If you start it, and then it creates the momentum to move forward, right? And so what we, we typically say, you know, to help with the sense of motivation and to, you know, with the motion to change emotion is to start setting SMART goals, right? So just quickly, um, SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Relevant, and Time-Bound. And we don't have time to go into all of them. Um, but just quickly, um, what does it mean by specific? Uh, just that you're very clear, you know exactly what you're trying to attain. Exactly. So if you're like, oh, I'm going to exercise tomorrow, right? That's not going to be really helpful if I'm, unless I say, okay, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, however, as specific as possible. Um, that's kind of also related to measurable. What, what does that mean, measurable? So in that, in that case, it would be that you're definitive in what your goal is, right? So if it's, um, I want to go and work out at the gym, maybe it's, I want to work out this many days per week, right? So I want to work out five days per week. Or if you have a goal to lift a, a certain amount of weight on a particular exercise, it's, you know, I want to hit that particular weight, right? Yes. Rather than just being, I want to get stronger. It's, I want to be able to, uh, I want to be able to lift this much weight with this particular exercise. Exactly. because And that helps to have some sort of measurement to be able to recognize if I'm meeting that goal or not, right? Because if it's just arbitrary, then I won't know. Um, so measurable, attainable. This one's really, really important because I don't know how many times I've had a client that sets a goal over and over again, feels like a failure because they don't accomplish it because it wasn't attainable in the first place, right? Any comments on that one or... 
Yeah. If, uh, if you're five foot three, don't, don't try to get into the NBA. Right. So, <laughs> but, but in a lot of cases, I'm, I'm sort of saying that tongue in cheek, but in a lot of cases we end up doing this. We, we create these massive mountains of goals and, and, and we focus on that peak, right. When, rather than focusing on, on the steps in between. So we can, we can attain in most cases far more than, uh, in a lot of what we think we might be able to set our mind to, but uh, alternatively, a lot of times we create these massive goals uh, without really real any journey to get there. Exactly. And uh, and we don't really have a plan. Yeah. And so we can get really bogged down if our goal is too too large. Yeah, exactly. I like that the small steps added up. Right. I never set the goal to run a marathon because I was like I can never do that. I was not a runner, but then my friend tempted me to do a half, so that was a little bit more attainable. Um, even that was too much. But then I looked at the training plan and it was like, okay, one mile, one mile. And then some days were even less than that. And then over time, I found myself doing 10 miles and so forth. And I'm like, oh, wow, because the small steps added up. So attainable, we're not telling people to run marathons. We're All we're saying is to set small goals that are achievable. And then once you meet that goal, you have more motivation and momentum to continue moving forward. Next one's relevant, right? Is it even relevant to you? Are you setting a goal because your doctor said so, your therapist said so, or is it relevant to you as a person? Well, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, uh, hopefully hopefully, uh, we've convinced you that exercise is relevant to your overall mental health. And so it's probably worth pursuing in that, in that case as well. But there are so many other benefits, you know, medical benefits, social benefits to engaging in exercise on a regular basis. And so really it is relevant to everybody, whether or not they recognize it. Mm-hmm. And then the specific type of exercise, whether or not that's relevant to them, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, somebody was telling me, oh, you should do the at home videos because I couldn't run outside for a time being. And I tried and it's not my thing. <laughs> and so I set the goal over and over again and I wasn't accomplishing it because that's just not mine. My my form of exercise that I enjoy, which goes back to kind of the, the fun aspect as well. And then time bound. Why is that important to have a sense of time in which you're trying to accomplish this goal? Uh, I think once it 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 goes back to just being clear, right? Being knowing what it is that you're aiming for and how long you intend to get there. If it's if it's a goal that you've established without any sort of uh, structure of time, then you've given yourself essentially till the end of time to get there. And when you have that much time, you're going to procrastinate. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow. Or, tomorrow. or next year or in 10 <laughs> years or what ends up happening is never, right? So so create a, a, a frame of time in which you would like to achieve that thing. Yeah. And we can just think about if, you know, a boss doesn't set a deadline for myself when my research advisor didn't give me a deadline for my dissertation, right? Without a sense of deadlines or time bound um, kind of timelines, there's no pressure to get something done or to even just start. Um, So we encourage you all to start setting SMART goals in order to help you achieve the goals that you want. And I'll just say one more thing on this uh, in, in terms of creating new new habits, and then we'll we'll go ahead and close up. But uh, you want to create a new identity when you're working on creating those new habits, right? If you are a person, uh, let's let's use the example of, and I know this isn't, um, well, no, we'll, we'll use an exercise example. So if you want to be a runner, right? Um, if you are somebody that is constantly telling yourself that I am not a good runner, but I want to get there someday versus the person that tells themselves, oh, they're just a runner. It's part of their identity. What is it that runners do? They run, 
right? What is it that somebody that's struggling to become a runner does? Probably in most cases continues to struggle, right? And so having that mindset is is really helpful in terms of uh, just establishing the motivation, even though I said it's overrated, more so in establishing the discipline to be able to do that thing because it's part of your sort of natural identity. All right. So let's summarize all that we learned. Is exercise good for our mood and our mental health? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And how exactly does it, how is it helpful for our mood? Well, there's lots, lots of different hypotheses, but uh, increased brain temperature, endorphins, um, you know, grows certain regions of the brain, increases neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine, serves as a healthy distraction, helps you feel like you've accomplished things, and then also can reduce inflammation. So it's great, period. <laughs> All right. And then um, what exercises are best? So in, when starting out, you want it to be fun, frequent, and friendly. Uh, you want to aim for 30 to 60 minutes per day. And you want uh, eventually, right, you want it to be challenging. Yeah. And then how do we accomplish those things? Through SMART goals, right? Making sure that they're specific, that you can measure them, and most important, attainable, right? Something attainable and relevant to you and time-bound as well. And if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Dr. Katie Elson. And I'm Jonathan. And you've been listening to The The Brain Brain People People Podcast. listening to hear more episodes find us on social media or support us financially visit the brain people podcast.com 